humanitarian. In a couple of days, COP26 kicks off in Glasgow, and the whole world is talking about climate change. In the humanitarian sector, we have discussed a lot how do we get ready for the new and bigger crisis that we will see in the future. And if you're interested in that issue, you should listen to episode 23, where Paul Knox Clark presents the thinking behind PREPARE, a new initiative on climate change and humanitarian action. But there is a, another less discussed issue that the humanitarian industry needs to deal with when it comes to climate change. And that is the environmental footprint that we as an industry have, and that's what we discussed this week. Right Booth is a humanitarian startup. It aims to reduce the amount of waste produced by humanitarian action, both from more or less ridiculous unwanted in-kind donations and from, for example, packaging from supplies. It's a really good and simple idea, and the best thing about it is that it's likely that it can be turned into a sustainable business and not be dependent on grants. Travis Oposensky is the founder of Right Booth, and as you will hear in this conversation, he needs some help. So if you like the idea and want to help him out getting this idea off the ground, email him on solutions at rightbooth.org. I know that I will be getting involved. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Travis Oposensky, welcome to Trumanitarian. Thank you so much for having me. You're here because one of your big fans recommended you. He said, uh, this guy has a great idea. You need to get him on the pod and listen to what he has to say. And your idea is called Right Boot. So why don't we begin with that? What, what is Right Boot? So Right Boot, uh, essentially, it is, is an organization that is aimed specifically at removing the burden and recovering value from the waste generated by humanitarian response. Um, kind of... The, the genesis of it and the genesis of the name is I was sitting at uh, I was sitting at a pub during uh, during grad school talking with one of my colleagues. One of my colleagues has just been uh, just returned from a deployment with uh, Red R Australia and come back from Vanuatu and they had you know they were telling me all about their experiences and they said you know they were talking with some of the the WFP folks there and they you know they got the conversation got to um, kind of some of the ridiculous in-kind donations they received that they were still dealing with. And this was in 2017. This was um, several years after um, uh, Pam. So they're saying, you know, we have all these, you know, bundles of fur coats and we have these pallets of sex toys and we have this entire container of left boots. Now, for uh, clarity's sake, it is important to note that I later learned that the container of left boots went to uh, somewhere else I think either the Philippines or Haiti but the you know it stuck in my brain as something that was uh, like a, a large disconnect from the mission the general mission of humanitarian operations and the the actual affect and so that stuck with me as I continued to study and as I moved back to the United States and I kind of uh, just kept looking and researching and talking to these same self same friends um, and I, I decided to do something about it. And so that's the, that's the genesis of Right Boot is in that it's to be the partner of those left boots and where we can make, you know, make the, the, the value, the true value of those donations and the efforts be felt by the clients. What I really like about your idea is that anybody who has worked in a sudden onset crisis have these stories that on one side are hilarious and on the other side deeply depressing of just how the heck could somebody think that this would be useful here? 
And when you add up the many thousands, quite frankly, idiots who sent stuff like this to the field, it becomes a massive operational problem. So I think you have a very elegant solution here. Can you tell me a bit about the, the business model that underpins Rightproof? Do you buy this stuff? Do they give it to you? How does it work? Generally, and kind of unseen by, uh, by kind of the, the layperson, right? Uh, in, some, in lots of countries, they'll be, you know, we will sort our recycling or we will deliver our recycling to this socially acceptable receptacle, and then we don't really see it anymore after that. But what does happen is oftentimes, especially in bulk, uh, those people who have built an industry around taking these post-consumer materials, whether it be plastics, cardboard, textiles, will take those and will purchase them and process them and then sell them on as, as a kind of virgin material, not, not in quality, but just in the beginning of a manufacturing process again. So it goes back into the value stream. So that is what inspired me to say, hey, maybe we can do this with those same things. So what we do is essentially we take those, um, we take those, say, textiles that have arrived uh, in situ, in country, and then we locate in the area in kind of a graduating radius of convenience and actual ability, depending on the logistics, those material uh, recovery facilities who process those materials. Um, so, for example, if we're talking about you know, hurricanes that have impacted the United States East Coast, and especially Florida often, you know, we would say, oh, there are material recovery facilities in Florida, there are material recovery facilities that are kind of all the way up the coast. And so whichever one are, who are closest, who will take those materials, we contact them. They will purchase the materials as scrap. That's their, that's their, that's their business model anyway. But we, then we can take that cash, and that cash goes back to those organizations who are on the ground, those community organizations who then use that um, as you know, the most green um, intervention uh, in, and the most flexible intervention to recover and to respond in their communities. Does that mean that you take the you take the donations of the big players, so the World Visions, the Oxfam's, the Saves, the Children, the WFPs, whatever, and you take it off their hands for free? They give it to you for free? Well, no. So my, I mean, if in a perfect world with my magic wand, I would love to be able to do this where I get we take one hundred percent of that impact and turn it around, um, but. So we, when we, as we move it through, when we, when we receive the money for that, we take a 10% service fee as of right now. Um, as, we, as we grow in scale, being able to create something self-sustaining, kind of like turnkey microenterprise in that locality, that's kind of my, you know, my, my vision, but I'm well aware of trying to avoid founder syndrome and what I think of what, it, what this could be. And it's, I don't want to get it confused as well. The... The, the, the UBDs, the unsolicited bilateral donations that sparked uh, Right Boots Genesis is not the only thing. The, the donations themselves are one part of a larger kind of uh, program or a larger system of the waste that, uh, generated. They're one factor of the waste generated generally by um, you know, humanitarian response. You talk about World, uh, WFP. They, in 2018, they had they shipped 40,000 tons of packaging, 40% of which was plastic. Um, so, like that 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 amount of impact in on a on such a large scale, then we can take that from you know usually that doesn't really that take that is there. That's where they are. That's you know the plastic arrives in country and then that goes to uh, like a, a landfill or some sort of material facility. 
it where it lands in in the area. So that the impact of the materials brought by those larger organizations who are shipping large amounts of things in lands on the community that is trying to recover, invariably, whether you know intent, you know, be damned, it happens. So the impact needs to be removed not just from the operational ability of the larger organizations, but from the communities that are themselves trying to, you know, you, um, trying to move through their programs and recover. Where would you say this is applicable? Can you do this in uh, Afghanistan? Um, there's actually a really interesting study that I just uh, that I just read um, by some pretty interesting people, which I can uh, send to you later, and you can drop a link in the uh, in the comments. But they were talking about you know it's kind of um, immediate onset crisis versus larger, uh, longer sustained crises. They come compared. Uh, waste management, solid waste management in Afghanistan and Yemen. Uh, and and in longer term, there's a, there's a difference in operation in longer term crises and immediate onset crises. Brightboot in its genesis kind of uh, started from the idea of operating in those long, in those shorter term immediate onset crises where the rapid onset of those, those donated goods that are, um, that are uh, disruptive and not useful, and the packaging waste. Um, it is definitely possible to do it long term. Long term kind of goes out of the scope of my remit in so into a larger, the more developmental context of how are we, you know, using localization as a as a, a guiding star. How are we creating a, an infrastructure of of circularity in these countries? How are we? Um, how are we helping them do that? How are we contributing to their development of, you know, what is a uh, kind of a universal idea, but not a universal practice? Yeah, I ask because you you mentioned Florida as a uh, as an example, and and obviously as humanitarians, Florida is not the first one we think. Of. Um, so I was just wondering, are we talking that this is an idea that primarily can be implemented in? say, middle-income countries in Asia that are prone to sudden onset disasters, or is it also South Sudan or some of the, the more difficult countries? It, it, how applicable is this, I guess, is my, my question. Well, I mean, the answer, the answer to that question is it can be applicable anywhere. It's just kind of how hard you work, right? The, those, those countries you brought up, South Sudan and Afghanistan, where they have very limited not only logistical infrastructure, which is always constantly in flux, but generally it, um, in terms of solid waste management. That's where the, um, not only like finding humanitarian logistical partners, using the, the growth of green logistics and reverse logistics, catching rides on the back of planes and, and trucks and boats going back to where they came to move materials out in those concentric circles out into, um, into places that do have those material recovery facilities, and then directing that back, so it's it can it can work. It, it's it, this idea is very simple. It's you take the thing and you recycle it. It's just kind of how, you know, how good we are at connecting those dots, which is kind of what what we aim to get better at, and what kind of where we're going. Your own background. What is? Are you a humanitarian who sort of thought, hey, we are too messy, or are you like a circular economy guy who thought these humanitarians are very messy? Uh, my background is. You know, in terms of 
career-wise, I was a musician and a music educator for a long time, but that brought me all over the world, and that brought me through Shanghai, and that brought me in contact with some really good friends who were doing uh, circular and sustainability consulting for corporations in China. Um, and so learning about um, a lot, all the corporate sustainability efforts on the top and then learning about you know the systems of informal recyclers and economies that operate off the books of traditional um, material recovery and you know sanitation and waste management uh, systems. Um, so and you know learning about all, all the innovation that comes in material management that comes in value recovery from materials. Um, and then moved on to Australia to study uh, peace and conflict studies. And so really this, what sparked, kind of what raised the alarm bells in my head was not, not just kind of like the, the, that, it was, uh, that it was speaking to a, a failing of the humanitarian system in any way. It was more of a, of a kind of a systemic issue, a positive peace issue in where we have this system who on its face in its, in its mandate says we are we are founded and exist to help people but through the achievement of that mandate we are causing a lot of damage and we are doing the opposite we are we are you know hurting instead of helping and so that in terms of kind of systemic justice and uh and you know positive peace and kind of systemic change that's where that's what drew me into that and so I was able to luckily, you know, kind of bounce this idea off of a lot of colleagues who did have experience in the humanitarian field and then link up with some people, yourself included, who have a lot of more in-depth knowledge. You're the, you're the founder of Right Boot, and, and take us through that uh, process. You get the idea in a bar over a beer, which is, for me, my favorite place to get new ideas also. And then you start, uh, what do you do next? Do you write up a concept? Do you have another beer? What do you do? To sing the praises of of good ideas over beers you know it was a, it was the it was the slow boil you know it was um you know hearing of the idea and a lot of thinking and a lot of uh, re uh rejection letters from other jobs uh that that kind of fuel saying you know not only do you know per for my personal life want to you know pursue this track but there is a you know finding that huge service gap so it's kind of a slow bit by bit um Uh, process of can I do this? Should I do this? Who would like me to do this? What's the you know where where is the 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 need? What are the real complications in in how I would do this? And you know just kind of picking up people who are extremely knowledgeable. You know that surprisingly enough there is like this small cohort of people who are very passionate about UBDs and unsolicited bilateral donations in particular. And so being able to find those people throughout the world and they are already connected in their own way and be able to join them and, um, and kind of hear what they have to say. That's, that, that was, that was actually, that was kind of more catalyst to being able to finally say, I'm going to, you know, ask my friends and family for money to, to, uh, to, um, incorporate and to, you know, kind of make this an uh, official institution. Just just for listeners, uh, UBD. Sorry, um, uh, the humanitarian system does love their acronyms. So UBDs uh, are unsolicited bilateral donations, and those donations aren't necessarily bilateral specifically in nature. It is just that those donations that arrive in a disaster zone that are unasked for, inappropriate, uh, or just generally disruptive to operations on the ground 
prom dresses, diet, weight loss drinks in Rwanda, pork labeled as beef in Afghanistan, chandeliers, you name it. Everyone's got a good story. And in fact, actually, if you could send in your stories of the most ridiculous uh, items you've seen in a humanitarian operation, that would be lovely. And they should send that into rightboot, info at rightboot.com.org? Uh, solutions, solutions at rightboot, not just info. Of course, it's solutions at rightboot.org. What else would it be? Uh, I'll send in a couple of my own also. Um, okay, so you have this slow boil, this process where you drink a lot of beers, talk it over with friends, you find out, okay, I'm going to do this. Then what, you ask your mom and dad for money, you say, or... You know, there's like the domestic legal aspect of it, and then there's the international aspect of it, which is still working on, you know, the international efficacy and kind of legitimacy aspect is a lot of more of relationship building. You know, who can I talk to at the Red Cross or who can I talk to at WFP or World Vision who will recognize my efforts as legitimate and partner? And that's still a work in progress because that requires a lot of those handshaky phone calls, which have been more difficult in COVID. But in terms of uh, in the United States for a legal nonprofit entity, um, I you know just did a, a quick friends and family round, and then I uh, worked with a company in the United States that does you know work that file has a bunch of lawyers that files those paperwork incorporation paperwork um, for you. And it was you know the the bigger hurdle was before that was you know should I am I the right person to do this? Should I do this? Is this is this really that important? Um, And I think that's a really valid and important question to ask yourself, especially me as a white man from America who is trying to intervene or create a add to the institutional you know, miasma of humanitarian uh, assistance. But since we're having this conversation, I guess that you have put those concerns aside. No, I think that's a, I think that is a often um, misconstrued. Like I. I think especially if we are genuinely concerned about decolonization, I think that it's not a, you know, you can use it the concept of being woke, yes, as this is so often <laughs> talked about here in the United States. So you're not, it's not a, a static being. It's not a, a point. It's not a medal you get. It's not a badge you sew on your shirt. It's a constant uh, cycle. It's a system. It's a, you know, so I hope to never have a full answer to that question. I hope to constantly be learning. I'm getting really worried about you now, Travis. With that attitude, you're never going to develop any decent sort of a founder syndrome. <laughs> well, that's fine. I think it'll be okay. So you've done, the in, you, you've done the initial paperwork. You've begun building your contacts. Have you gotten any funding? Are you on, this, are you on your own? Do you have uh, some part-time people? What, who are you apart from you? Uh, I am me. I have a really awesome uh, board who have been... You know, pretty much kind of like a like a working advisory board and sounding sounding board for me of uh, those people who were were already passionate about UBDs, um, and or you know friends of mine in the humanitarian sector. It's just me. It's just me working. You know, trying to find, trying to make those connections, um, trying to you know work up enough capacity to be kind of worthy of funding or get some funding to build that capacity. But it's just been. A lot of uh, me and late nights by myself. <laughs> so it's a one-man band uh, still. And you uh, you sent me a slide deck. I've seen some of your initial ideas. Hey, but you've begun pitching for money for different uh, investors. Where do you go? Do you go to the back donors? Do you go to what? 
So one, you know, kind of one of the reasons, one of the answers to myself and to kind of the world that I got was when I was mulling over, could I do this? Should I do this? Is the is, you know, kind of something that is exciting in the long term is that we sit in the intersection of this human of this funding stream of uh, innovation, innovation in big finger quotes in humanitarian aid, and then innovation and efforts in circular economy and sustainability. So. I, I've been going back and forth applying to um, circular economy incubators and accelerators unsuccessfully, unfortunately, you know, um, uh, like environmental, like innovation in um, in sustainability and, um, you know, things like that. And other like innovation in humanitarian uh, field uh, in incubators and accelerators and fellowships and things like that. So going back and forth between that, but not, I haven't really found that what I'm doing right now is uh, kind of in the in the realm of asking for asking for those big dollar donations you know and and that's another kind of founder's dilemma I guess is you know is is that is how can how can I make that decision how much are you looking for I think right now we could get by for uh, more than a year with I think my math with like three employees and all of the other stuff for probably 250,000 US. So to all of True Humanitarians, uh, donor listeners, you heard it here, 250 grand and you can help a great project get off the ground. That's a bargain. So you're looking for 250 grand and that would enable you over one year period to get what? Uh, the first couple of operations running on the ground, uh, proof of concept. What, 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 how far would that bring you? That would bring me to past proof of concept to kind of increasing operational capacity. So that just being able to get to places and be able to get to, I mean, the, the majority of that funding is really getting a few quality, qualified people who have who operate in the logistics field or who operate in a kind of a material recovery field some help. Some not just me, so I can do it one, I can do it full time, and the other people, we can bring in some team members to share that workload. And then that that funding will bring us through the the proof of concept in kind of in a humanitarian situation. We've kind of done some proof of concept stuff in a in a peacetime thing, working with local churches or organizations, kind of doing the recycling as fundraising thing. But that's it's a it's an easy it's low hanging fruit, but it's not you know kind of what I want to do. So that that funding will bring us through proof of concept to get being able to get um, operational status over a larger swath of the world, you know, so half half of the battle is building contacts uh, and uh, in both in grassroots organizations and in larger organizations and building a database of which is kind of right boots bread and butter is building the larger database of organizations, uh, material recycling facilities, recyclers, post-consumer materials providers, corporations who use post-consumer material in their products that will be willing to accept these materials, building that database, the receiver database. So, you know, so when I am asking, when I'm asked, you know, who's going to pay, who will pay for this, who's going to, where am I going to get this money to, for these, these donations or these items, then I can have a really long and extensive black book of answers. 250 to get you off the ground and begin building and, and creating this operation. And when do you then think that you're generating enough money to, to be self, self-sustaining? That's a great question. Um, I don't really know. I, I think that the, with capacity comes, so with capacity comes 
the, uh, an increased ability for frequency of transactions. How many shipments of textiles and donations can I move to these material recyclers and receive money for? Um, because it's never going to be just one at one time. That flow is consistent uh, uh, over time of donations and materials. It's never going to be like, one, you know, you do one in Haiti and you're done. Um, so how can I, how quickly can I have, how many transactions can I have in a given period? How robust is that donation network so that I do less and kind of analog typing and searching on the computer uh, to, you know, very, like grunt work uh, to find that. Um, uh, so the, the, that scalability, idea, that, that funding to scale the capability in terms of the database and in terms of uh, all that is, would really get me to a position where I could have many transactions at once in a given disaster season, but I don't know, uh, you know, kind of a date what that would look like. No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. What, uh, but to give us an idea of the money, uh, do, do you have like an average figure you get out of a metric ton of waste? Um, the, so textiles is really easy. Um, textiles is really easy because it's it's you know it's uh, it, people donate clothes often. Sometimes those clothes are not uh, appropriate. You know, in terms of like a, you know don't you know designer high heeled shoes, designer handbags, prom dresses. Um, for uh, winter coats and you know in Honduras skis in Fiji, things like that. Um, so, but and they're kind of they're very salient to the 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 layperson and the humanitarian. Um, so, uh, in in terms of the general you know average I've gotten is for one kind of forty foot container of textiles, which is the large you know large shipping container, um, which uh, I can't remember the tonnage of that that. One container of tech, uh, full of textiles to a material recovery facility is about nineteen thousand U.S. dollars. So that's just one of those transactions, and those are you know, I use that because that's kind of a very typical unit of measure in the transportation of international aid. You know, we're putting stuff on ships, we're putting stuff on trucks, um, or we're putting stuff on planes, things like that. So, so it, I mean, it, we're not talking peanuts here. It's a substantial amount of money, right? And and you know, not only is the not only is the that's over one transaction, thinking of ten plus transactions in uh, in a kind of a given recovery and response um, phase, but when you know, for example, going back to Vanuatu, when Tropical Cyclone Pam hit, and those donations, those shipping containers sat in port and accru accrued demurrage fees, that cost the government two hundred two point five million U.S. over you know the course of like, I think what ten to eighteen months, something like that. So um, the the net swing, uh, not only the, my ability to kind of make money off of each transaction, but the net swing of uh, opportunity cost and money lost to money gained is massive. Why do you think it's difficult for you to sell this to the the people you've been approaching? Because the idea is so intuitive to me. And and the amount you just mentioned, 19,000 US dollars for, for one 40-foot container, if you think about how much quite frankly, shit comes into a large-scale disaster, it's, it's, it's significant. And, and, and I think there is an opportunity to, for you to build right boot into a sustainable business. So why do you think it's difficult to, to get somebody to bite? Just because specifically, or particularly that, humanitarian aid, among many other kind of like peace and development uh, institutions, is a, a value-explicit profession. You 
work in humanitarian aid because you have a very specific set of values that, you know, in varying levels of development that people deserve dignity and, you know, if people are in trouble, they you should help, right? And so all of the actions people take not only have like a, you know, a physical kind of component, a, a logistical kind of pragmatic component, but they also at every stage carry some sort of emotional component, whether it's you're talking about the donations where, you know, if, you know, oftentimes you would see, you know, oh, uh, you know, Red Cross is, is not uh, using our donations or they're having to throw our donations away. And so they have to make, they have to kind of uh, work against that, that public Im image, whereas they're, you know, receiving a bunch of garbage, but the donating public says, I want to help, even though it's misguided and uninformed, I'm going to send, you know, whatever I send helps, that's going to go. So that donation not only has a, a wasted, in this case, physical value, but a, and a wasted emotional value where we're missing the connection of getting that, that, that kind, you know, that genuine, maybe it's a, the optimist in me, but getting that, the, the innate kindness in that to, um, to the, the recipient. And then on the humanitarian side, it's, you know, you are working in this value explicit field. And so uh, it's a, a very delicate subject to broach with people, you know, not saying, hey, I want it, not just saying, hey, you're doing this wrong. Or like, hey, I, I have a solution for you that's to something that you don't really want to admit is wrong or that causes much more problems for you to admit is wrong or that you don't have a kind of a, a, a set fixture within your organization to deal with. You know, there's the logistics people who are dealing with part of it. There are the kind of like grand, gr grander scale environmental consultants, uh, environmental impact consultants, and people who are doing academic research, and they're doing one thing, but, you know, dealing with this, uh, this concerted effort to, uh, to mitigate waste is kind of a, it's like a, it's a, it's a gap often that's kind of filled by a bunch of different people. So it's it's a it's a it's a logistical thing about the you know capacity of the organization and it's an emotional thing you know dealing with this kind of at some point says uh, to some people I can imagine saying you know you're not doing good at your job but that's not entirely you know what I'm trying to say as right boot. No, for me that's very clearly not what you're saying, and we've all seen operations more or less paralyzed by by stuff like this airports blocking up and and so on and so forth. I also think in recent years that there is an increasing understanding of our the, the environmental impact of, of humanitarian aid, and I think a real, real desire and understanding to change that aspect of our business, uh, beginning with how many of us should be flying around the world, heating the planet, to how do we deal with waste in the field. So I, I really hope that uh, you moving forward will will find more receptive ears within the, the business because I think it is a very good idea and I think I think that mind shift change is coming. So so I actually think it is quite likely that you can get this off the ground. I hope so. Yeah, let's hope so. And what uh, if you had a wish list, apart from the 250K, what do you want? Oh, man. Uh, that's, a, that's the question, isn't it? Um, I think in terms of just, just broadly... I love talking about this very, very particular uh, isolated mo point in, uh, of waste in the humanitarian sector. Um, I, and I think that because that little nexus it, it is a nexus of so many different disciplines of you know, the humanitarian logistics of the, of the um, circular economy, a person who's passionate about the circular economy, people who are passionate about, um, you know, uh, 
doing all these other things. It's, there's a great confluence of uh, of, of opinions and um, abilities and people's likes and dislikes that are right there in in that. And so building, and so I want to talk to you, essentially. I want to talk to anybody. Uh, if you're interested in this and you think this is a good idea, let's make it happen. Come with me. Um, so more people who are interested in, in kind of doing, doing something about this, if you think this is a good idea, we can do that. Um, in terms of, you know, I, I'm interested in, you know, uh, people's journeys through digitization of their of their process. I think that the you know the more digital right boot gets in its in its program, I think there's an a always an analog point because at some point, you know the the conversation of environment, the conversation of efficacy and humanitarian aid needs a human. It needs you know empathy and it needs nuance and of a human of a human interaction. But you know the more we can digitize the the process, the more efficient and more green we can be. Um, so really interested in people's efforts through software solutions uh, to things like that. Do you want to help me program a survey in Kobo Toolbox? <laughs> also, let's go. Um, you know, things simple like that. I am, you know, it takes a village, and I'm not, I definitely is not able to or not wanting to do this alone. So to be clear, you're, you're asking for people to volunteer and come help you with various tasks, be that social media, be that development of concepts, or just drumming up some more attention around this. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk. I, I want to. I want to talk to as many people who want to talk about this issue as possible. You know, that's kind of the. And then once we can, once we kind of all talk about it, then we can figure out how best to do it or how to continue. As a humanitarian, I always thought about this is a life-saving, life-saving activity. Actually, whether it's sustainable or not is not the primary concern here. We're not doing development. We're trying to save people's lives and dignity. And that calls for sort of a very brutal operational, just get out there and help people. I know that's very, that's very basic, but that I think is, is really part of our mental makeup. I guess that, that also somehow has to change. How, 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 this is not just about waste. It's a, I think it's about the way we think about the whole humanitarian endeavor. In a sense. I agree. I agree. I think when, with all this talk of especially you know, breaking down silos, I think that has to include thinking really outside the box on what, you know, you can't choose what silos to break down and what, uh, what inputs and opinions to bring into creating a better and more uh, equitable humanitarian system because then it would be counter-purpose. Like you can't always say, oh, I want to, you know, include this. Um, I, 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 think, I think that bringing in an idea of, you know, circularity into, into, the, into that where... I, I don't think, or so really, to, to, to speak to that point, I don't think that the immediacy uh, and urgency of life-saving operations and circular ideals are mutually exclusive. And I think that is, a, I, I think that's often a hard sell. That's the argument I have with people is, you know, oh, I say, hey, where's that plastic waste going during your, you know, as you're shipping in all these thousands of water bottles? Uh, and they say, "Oh, you don't know what you're, you're you don't know what you're talking about. You're talking about uh, this is this is response. You're talking about recovery." I'm like, "Well, no, you're bringing in the garbage. It's right there. You posted it on your your Instagram and your or your LinkedIn. Um, and you're not what you're doing is not wrong. Plastic packaging is inherent. It has to be. It has to be. You know, you're bringing in medicine. You have to protect that. You're bringing in shelter. You have to protect that. You have to these things in which you're doing your life saving saving operations are important. But they we can do it in a way." And we must do it in a way that 
does not create an extra burden, you know, for the the customer, the client. We we know that disasters will get bigger and more severe and more frequent in the future, and it's very likely that we will also see simply different kinds of disasters. When you think about right route in ten years or twenty years, what 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 does it look like? Do you have any idea? My idealist self said I'd love to be out of a job by that time, but the pragmatic self says that right boot has to and will and is you know kind of its the the idea at its core evolves you know with the how good we are at applying circular uh, theories and circular strategies to humanitarian aid you know I I I want and I have started right boot to participate in a zero waste future for humanitarian aid but. Right boot doesn't exist in a vacuum, and it's not, and it, it cannot be the only, you know, the only uh, person moving forward. You know, the only, the only piece of that puzzle. No, it can't be the only strategy we apply to to solve this problem. There must be a a, a broader effort to move us towards sort of a, a zero emissions uh, goal, as you, as you set forth. But but you see right boot as a permanent feature of the humanitarian sector moving forward. I guess. Yeah, because I, I think there there are so there's a, there's that vast vertical uh, kind of structure, whereas there's the there's the uh, local community on the ground experiencing disaster and recovering from disaster, all the way up to large scale policymakers in a, you know in a you know a global humanitarian cluster within multiple organizations or in the UN or something. So between those and between those, there are multiple multiple levels of actors, right? And what we don't often see or what maybe perhaps turns into points of contention is the interdependence between those levels. Like we need the activism. We need the people um, who are like right boot, who are trying to bend that curve and instead of creating a linear waste model where it goes into this, right into the landfill, trying to bend that curve and, and recover that value back into a global system who is mindful of all that, of all the waste uh, and recovery. And then just as important, we those people depend on the, the policymakers who are trying to say we need to we use what kind of packaging we're using, what kind of what you know, what are our waste management guidelines, what are our um, you know, what are our uh, transportation uh, and logistics looking like? How are we? What's our footprint there? So th they're all existing, and they can't exist uh, isolated from one another. And they m we must be more. On the on the on the same team, you know, it's a, it is a it is a system. It is a, a team effort up and down that structural uh, that structure. And I don't often think that people kind of think that. I think that there are you know there are the policymakers and there are the people who are. And I say policymakers with some like very vague <laughs> meaning, but you know the the people who are making the decisions about about gross and grand policy on uh, packaging and on uh, the sustainability of their organizations. They, you know, they, oh, this is, you know, this, this, we're making systemic change. We're making the real, the real change. It's like, well, no, just like in the United States where we have prized for so long innovation in recycling, but not infrastructure in recycling. So you ha can have all the great ideas you want, but if there's nobody on the ground to do it and no, like, value and real dignity and life in uh, a sector of <laughs> waste management and value recovery, then it's not going to happen. And we all need each other up and down the scale, and there's and we have to work together. Well, Travis, welcome to you and to Right Boot to the humanitarian team. I think uh, you bring something really valuable 
to the sector, and I, I look forward to seeing this idea evolve in the coming years, and I'm, I'm confident that you will be successful and that this will make a real difference. So thank you. Thank you for that, and thank you for coming on True Minitarian. Thank you so much. It's really been an honor and a pleasure to be here. It's about the rights and the freedom to be, for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate. And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs> <laughs>